0: So we are we are on week three. This will be our final week of a study through the book of Haggai. And so, if you've been tracking along, um, I think it's it's been a really I've really been enjoying going through this book. And it's just a, a few chapters. It's two chapters. Uh, it's one of those smaller books. It's there between. Between Genesis and the New Testament, or it's in the Old Testament, right? Uh, and it's known as a minor prophet. Haggai is known as a minor prophet just because he didn't have as much to say. So it's just it's a smaller book. And so we've been learning about Haggai himself, this prophet, and we've been learning about when this message was given, when when this book, this letter was written. And and it's important because in order to really understand the main story of, of the book, we gotta we gotta have the backstory. And so week one, we really dug deep into the, the context of the book and when it was written, why, why, you know, what Haggai was doing, what was happening, in the, the children of Israel, the people of God at that time, they had been invaded by an enemy, right, the Babylonians. And so they were living in Israel and Judah, and, and they, were, they were able to have this freedom, they were able to worship God freely, and then slowly but surely, the Babylonians came in and, and began to take them captive took them all back to Babylon, ended up completely invading the country. And so for 70 years, the people of God were were, um, in bondage. And and the temple where the the church would meet, where the people of God would meet, was was in ruins. And so after about 70 years, a king named Zerubbabel allowed them to go back and to start rebuilding. And that's been our narrative. That's been what we've, we've really seen what the people of God faced to start doing what God called them to do. You know, I think one of the themes we're seeing in this book, I know that's coming across to me over and over and over, is that oftentimes the hill that God calls you to take, it's going to be, up, it's going to, it's going to be quite the journey, right? That, that everything worthwhile in life sometimes is uphill. And we, we love the downhill rides. We like it when just things fall together. But looking at the people of God in the book of Haggai and what they were doing and what God had called them to do, there was a continuous battle in their life. You know, the first week we talked about this hidden enemy that was discouraging them, right? It was very practical. They got sued. They, start, they started to rebuild their houses and rebuild the temple. And there was this hidden enemy that was writing letters about them and hired lawyers and was writing, um, you know, suing them and trying to get them to stop doing what God called them to do. And that was week one. Last week, what was, you know, kind of getting in the way was comparison. They started building for about a month and then they began to compare it to the old temple, what it used to look like. And they got so discouraged, they just quit. And you're like, you know, Solomon's temple was bigger. It was better. It was like, you know, it had all this gold and all these, you know, they had more resources. There was more help. They had more time. And and so we talked about how the comparison, there's no win in comparison. Amen. Right. Anytime you compare what God has given you to what someone else has you immediately devalue what you have in your life and overvalue what you don't have. And it's a tactic of the enemy, right? And so that was the second thing in this, in this book that we draw out. And then today as we close and we're going to finish, we're going to read the last few verses of the last chapter of Haggai. I'm going to read it first because this is one of those messages where, you know, you're going to have to put your seatbelt on. It could get a little bumpy, right? Yeah, this, is, this is one of those messages where it's, it's pretty uh, it's challenging. And again, the, the book of Haggai, it was, it was correcting, but it was challenging. The prophet Haggai was around 70 years old when God called him to, to do this and to write this letter and to challenge the people of God. And so at, at face value, it can seem like, man, this is a really challenging book. It's a, really, it's a correctional book, right? Because he was trying to help the, the people of God stay on track. But then this, this last few verses here... Haggai tells a story, verse 10. And he says, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2 of the book of Haggai, if you're following along, we'll have it on the screen for you. And it says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. So there was four prophecies in the book of Haggai. This is the last one. This is what the the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests. So he's talking to the, the priests here. What the law says, if a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and that fold touches some bread or stew or some wine or some oil or some other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Verse 13, then Haggai Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Verse 14, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and with this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, that they're doing all this work, but whatever they offer is defiled. So that's, I didn't get any amens, all right? I just, I, I just, you're like, what does that even mean? So first off, let's, let's break it down. He's talking to the priests so he's he's talking to the religious leaders because he clearly is trying to convey this message to them first and the best illustration i just to kind of just put it out plainly it's 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 in the old testament they were really particular about what you came in contact with and so they had you know lots of rules around how you handled those that deceased how you handled meat right you heard of kosher meat right and so they had very specific rules around those things and so there was, there was these, um, you know, the, the priests specifically would be very versed in this. They would know. And so what he's basically asking is, the best way I've, I, I feel like I could illustrate it is, is if, if you um, have clean hands and you touch a, a bowl of spaghetti, right? That's just the, the bowl. You've eaten all the spaghetti, but it's full of sauce. If enough people with clean hands touch that bowl, is it going to become clean? No. But everybody with clean hands that touches that bowl, they're going to get spaghetti sauce on them. Does that make sense? Let me try like this. We're living in the world of where all, all we hear about now is people getting sick and colds and all that stuff. And so how awesome would it be if enough healthy, healthy people could touch a sick person that they would get better? Wouldn't it be nice if there were 250 healthy people here and all the ones that might be sick? Because there are so many healthy people in this room, it made the sick people well. But it doesn't work that way. One person can have a cold, right? One person can have something in them that's a, a whatever virus is defiled. It's not good. We shouldn't. We don't want to breathe it in. We don't want it in our body. And one person can make a lot of people sick. So what the prophet is showing here is he's letting the priests know that there's some things in the lives of the people of God that's making them sick. They've allowed some things in their life that that that's made them unclean. And and so the the week one we read the first prophecy, and they were working and it said it feels like I'm putting money with in, in bags with holes in it, and I got lots of food but I'm not satisfied, and I've got you know I've got lots of clothes but I'm never it's never enough. And so we find like all these problems, these things that Haggai, it's like we're unpeeling an onion here. And today he gets to the core of it. Those were kind of symptoms. And so what was really going on is that there were some things that the people of God allowed into their life that God warned them against. And I think everybody in here, we we call them vices, right? We have virtues and we have vices. And every, every one of us has them. Abraham Lincoln, he said, I, it's been my experience that folks who have no vices have very few virtues. And so don't act all churchy this morning. I know you're looking good and you're smelling good and you, got your, you brushed your teeth and you got your church clothes on. But underneath all that, every person has virtues and every person has vices. Things in our life that, that we know are there that if we follow those things, we get into trouble. If we allow those things into our life, we get into trouble. And so part of why we do this fast every year at the first of the year is simply put, just to, is to be able to say no to the vices in your life and say yes to the virtues. Because not every vice is, you know, when we think of vices, we think of, you know, really bad stuff sometimes, right? The, the, the really bad things. But sometimes vices can be like watching too much news or spending too much time on the phone or maybe spending too much time talking about things that maybe no good's coming out of it, right? Vices can fall in all kinds of categories, and, 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 and it's not always bad for everybody. Some people can sit down and eat one piece of chocolate cake and not want the rest of the cake, right? But then some folks, they sit down, they eat one chocolate, piece of chocolate cake, they want the whole cake, you know what I mean? Like, like, I can't open a bag of Oreos and eat one Oreo. I cannot do it. It is physically impossible for me to do that. Like, I'm like the Haribo gummy bears, same way I love gummy bears, like I can eat, I'll eat so many gummy bears, I make, you know, I make myself sick. And so I know maybe one of my vices is sugar. I'm a little hooked to sugar, you know, and that's it, probably not a good thing. But, but then there's other vices, there's other things. And so the point of the fasting is to say no to the things that have the ability to hurt us and say yes to the things that have the power to heal us. So that's what we do. We do it for 21 days. And I've, and I've been so encouraged by hearing everyone that's, that's, um, that's, that's participating in that, that's saying no to the things in their life that they're trying to maybe beat or overcome and saying yes to the things in their life that, that brings healing, that, that God is able to use to give them the victory over maybe some of their vices. And so I'm finding for me, like in my life, there's, there's really a f- three areas where the enemy likes to come in and try to take advantage of people's vices, people's weaknesses. You know, what do you do with the things in your life once you figure them out that you know, like, may, may, I've gotta, I can get angry. I maybe shouldn't get that angry. i got to walk away from that. That's a vice for me. Or if it's food, or if it's drugs, or if it's alcohol, or if it's something else, or if it's lust, or if it's something that you're looking at, or It's a person or something like that's drawn your attention. How do you battle it? And what I'm finding is the devil, y'all, he has no new tricks in his book. He's been doing the same play over and over and over since the beginning of time. And it's so good because we can go back and we can look at the first time that temptation is ever really brought to us. The first instance, the first mention of, of temptation. We know it's in Genesis 3 this is not in your notes, and I don't want to go into great detail, but they had one rule. <laughs> like, Adam and Eve, we got, like, more than one rule now, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's several things if you do, you're going to get in trouble, all right, right? It's against the law, the Ten Commandments, 613 laws in the Old Testament, right? Jesus kind of bowled it all down to one. But anyways, in the garden, they had one rule. Please, whatever you do, Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I want you to see the pattern in Genesis 3. And I, this is not in your notes, verse 6. But it says that Eve, she seen that the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It caught her eye. It was desirable at gaining wisdom. And the way that the serpent teeted up. And again, I've never had a snake talk to me. But anyway, so the snake is talking to Eve. And the way that he teed it up is he said, you know, God didn't say that you couldn't have it. He just knows if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. And so the final swing came, I think, for, at the ego or pride. That if you eat this, you're going to be like, your life's going to be better. You're missing out if you don't do this. Ain't that how the enemy talks to us? All right, God wants you happy. Just go and try it. You know The grass is greener on the other side, but what the, what the enemy doesn't tell you is it's over a septic tank. And the water bill is a lot higher over there. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so it's the same trick. It's the same play. And then we see this exact same pattern in, in the book of First John. I'm going to read this to you. I've I, I heard it called the unholy trinity. How, how does the world, right? How do these things that the enemy presents to us that we know is bad, we know we don't need to do it. How does it get inside of us? Because you know, it can do no good, it can do no power, it has no harm over us if we don't grab it. Eve could have stared and Adam could have stared at that tree. They could have sniffed the apple, right? They could have, they could have sat by the tree, but when it got inside of them, when they ate of it, right? And this is what the writer tells us, this, this unholy trinity. How do we stay pure from the world? How do we keep these vices from taking over our lives, from poisoning the well, so to speak. Chapter 2, verse 15. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, here we go, the three ways that temptation comes into our life. The lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires will pass away. And this is not just a physical death. This is a spiritual one. It's like when you eat of this tree, it's not going to be good. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so the enemy has no new tricks. He has no new plays. And that's what he's doing now. And every one of us has faced these things. Every one of us has been tempted. Every person. Starts pretty young, right? And temptation is not bad. Nothing wrong with temptation. Every one of us has been tempted. Every one of us has had something that we wanted, but we knew, well, if I grab a hold of that, it's probably not going to be good. And a few things about, you know, temptation in itself is not sin. It's what we do with it. When the serpent was talking to Eve and having this conversation, you know, he was dangling the fruit in front of her. She was tempted. And she didn't have to act on that. You know, she didn't have to listen to that desire. She didn't have to obey those things. But it's when we act on it. It's, it's when, we, you know, when we allow those things into our life. When, you know, and and so I want to go through this. Number one, the first thing, this unholy trinity, the, the writer John tells us it's the lust of the flesh. And I think the real door or entryway for that is, is, is our feelings. It's what we feel. It's what we feel. One writer said that, that opportunity knocks, but temptation leans on the doorbell. It's always there. It's always available. And we all have feelings. And I'm not discounting feelings because feelings are real, but they're not always right. And we live in a world in a culture that just says, if it feels good, do it. And what's the harm, right? Just ch- try it. But we've, we, I think, most of us in here now that've lived a little, little while knows that if you just made every decision based on how you feel, it doesn't end well. So your your feelings are real, but you can't trust them. You can't you can't you you can't lead your life based on feelings. Your feelings I feel are like gauges in a car. They let you know what's going on in the engine. They're like they let you know that maybe something's wrong. Maybe you need to check on something. But you can't you can't drive your life on feelings. Because if that's what we, and that's kind of the motto of the culture, and we're seeing how that's working out. And so God brings in another, I think, strategy. He says, Don't do what you feel, do what I've told you to do. And you look at when this temptation comes, and, you know, we see it over and over. The first time we see it in Genesis, but even Jesus, we see in Matthew, I believe it was four, he was tempted. He says he was led out in the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And every time that Satan tempted him, do you know what he responded with? The the word. Satan said, "Hey, you know you're hungry. I see you've been fasting. I got tempted last week, y'all. Okay, and I gave in. I'm just going to confess. Can I confess? My goal was to do a, a full fast, and I, I just you know I'm blaming it on. I don't know, but uh, anyways, we just we, we I have a we have a my my son. He's five, and he just has a lot of snacks in the house and. And, uh, you know, I didn't put up a good enough barrier between me and the snacks. And uh, anyways, I got up late one night and just just sniffed out the snacks. But uh, So I, I was just being led by my feelings. But anyways, we, we, we can't be led by our feelings. And Jesus, is there anything wrong with eating bread? No. But he was led out to the wilderness by God. He was obeying the voice of the Lord. He knew what he was doing. And that's why, God, that's why Satan came to tempt him. The second one, hey, throw yourself off the temple and, and, and the angels will come and save you. Three times he's tempted in each three of those categories, and I really can't go into it right now, but are all in these three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So that word flesh, lust of the flesh, it, it actually it means the animalistic desires that we have. Every person has them. Because desire can be really good and desire can be really bad. And so it's, it's uncovering those desires that we have, the unhealthy ones, maybe some of the, the toxic traits that we know that we have, and, ha- and being able to say no to them, having boundaries in our life that we know that keeps us from maybe falling into the same trap over and over and over. I used to tell when I was a youth pastor, I loved those days, and I mean, it was like I had one sermon I felt like, <laughs> over and over and over, but I would always challenge the kids. I was like, you know... You've got to define your no early. Like, don't decide that you're not going to try recreational drugs when you're in the back of somebody else's car at the party at 2 a.m. with all your friends. Like, that's probably not a good time to decide if I'm going to say no to this. And I think part of life and being able to say yes to the things that God has for us is having the willpower to say no to the things that the enemy has for us. And we all have it. It's in our flesh, right? It's this. It's another way I heard it defined is is when it's this this animalistic instinct. It's when we're when we're hot after something, right? We're hot after something. I'll never forget. I think it was Lord. It's probably fifteen years ago, twenty. It was a while. This evangelist came to the church that I was going to, and um, his name was David Talbert. Some of his family's here and part of the church now. He was, he was an amazing preacher. He was one of the best preachers that I've ever seen. But he um, was a missionary first. He spent a lot of time in the Philippines. And so he did a lot of preaching all through the Philippines. And he told a story about when, you know, he would go to the Philippines, spent months there, and he got to know that this, na- this native tribe, it was, in, you know, in, in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the rainforest. And they loved this certain kind of monkey. They ate it, okay? Are y'all with me? And they ate. I mean, everything on The, the, the most. He said when he told the story. He said the first time, you know, once he got to know this tribe, like the, when, when they're trying to impress someone, they prepare monkey brain for them to eat. And that, yeah, some of y'all are like, what in the world? Anyway, so there's this monkey, and, and so he, they they were telling him this story of how they would hunt this monkey. And over the years, you know, as at first they would they would just use spears. But the monkeys got smart. And so they would stay far enough away from these, these uh, natives to where they couldn't kill the monkeys anymore with spears. And so they, they upped their weaponry. They got bows and arrows. So they started shooting them with bows and arrows. And so they, that's how they were able to, to harvest this monkey. I know this is a weird story, but stay with me. You know, and then they got guns. But listen, the, the, the monkeys were so smart, they figured out how to avoid the guns. So they would stay hundreds of yards away from these natives, and they knew exactly how far those guns could reach. And then he told them what they figured out and how they harvest their monkeys now. He said there's no weapons involved. They would go out into a field, and there's a certain plum that this monkey loved. It's all it ate. It was its favorite food. So what they would do is they would just take a cage little cage, few bars, and they would take that plum, and they would boil it down to a jelly, and they would put a stick in the middle of the cage, and the monkey could smell the jelly, and that animalistic instinct was triggered in the monkey, and so they would just put it in the middle of a field, and they would sit back in the woods, and they said all it would take was just a few minutes, and that monkey would come out of the, come out of the bush, right, come out of the jungle, and it would walk in. And if it ever grabbed the stick in the middle of the cage, it could not let go. And so they didn't need any weapons. They would walk right up to the monkey. And the monkey was, at that point, it had grabbed a hold. Its white saliva glands were, were activated. It, it could not physically let the stick go. And they would just knock them on the heads with clubs. Isn't that wild? He called the message, Monkey Turn Loose. It's that desire that we all have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was being led to his execution. He was an officer during World War II, became a Christian, and he was a part of the plot to kill Hitler. And he he wrote this book called Temptation right before he was executed. And he writes about this. He says, In our members, there is this slumbering inclination that's both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire ceases mastery over the flesh doesn't matter what the desire is it may be lust pride bitterness hatred passion a love for the world but joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in other things he says in this moment God is quite unreal to us when we focus on the sensual we lose all reality of God Catch this one, this last line. Satan does not fill us with a hatred for God, just a forgetfulness. And so, a temptation word picture I've heard before is that it's a sparkling bait hiding a deadly hook. And it's better to shun the bait than to struggle in the snare. And so we got to get good at saying no, right? It's getting quiet here, y'all. Let's move on. What's What's the second one? Lust of the flesh. Second one, lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. What I see. I think that's where it enters in. I think that's the first step. Once we see it, Eve saw the fruit. It would have never graduated to, well, it looks good. It looks delicious. It looks like I could gain wisdom. All that conversation would have never happened if she would have never seen it. I mean, really, I, I I say I would do this. I don't know, but if I was Adam and Eve, in the garden in that moment, and God put a tree in the middle, he said, "Everything else in this world you can have. It was perfection, y'all. Like, you know, it's just incredible. It was paradise. I, I would have to figure out a way to build a fence around that tree. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to put up a barrier. I'm going to guard. I don't want to see it. Don't want to get near it. Right? Like, like. And I think that's a part of where we begin to, to to walk in wisdom. That that we we know the vices that we have and we know the things that we just don't need to get close to. Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 22, he says that the eye is the entryway to the body. It's the lamp of the body. He says if, if our eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. So These are not in your notes. So I just want to give you a few, a few scriptures where men and women have fallen into traps and it started with here. What they seen, Genesis 39, verse 6, Joseph was handsome. Potiphar's wife, she cast longing eyes on him. We talk about Eve, Genesis 3, verse 6, Eve saw the fruit. Genesis 13, verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes, seeing the city behind him. Joshua 7, verse 21, the story of Achan. Achan stole some treasure that wasn't his. The first step to the stealing, though, was the seeing. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12, David and Bathsheba. How did it end up in full-blown adultery and then in murder? He sent, he sent Bathsheba's husband to be murdered. It started right here. David was hanging out on the, the edge and the ledge of the temple. And he knew that the women in that day, they bathed on top of their houses. So I'd probably stay off the top of my house. You know what I'm saying? My wife wouldn't let me up there, all right? like I just... <laughs> But he, it started with seeing it. And I think right now one of the, one of the things that I've been so encouraged by and hearing people doing is laying down their social media, getting off of social media, getting off of that phone for a while. Because I think that, that there's some things that the enemy can use. For, the phone can be used for a lot of good. The Internet can be used for a lot of good. But it's being used for a lot of bad. And I think especially if you're a man or a young man in here and, and you have some struggles in that area with things that you see, it's, it's, it's good character. I think it's an honest person that's able to say, you know what? I, don't, I can't just get on the internet and scroll. Can't do it. I personally have, it's called Covenant Eyes. I have it on every device that I own. Every device that the church has, it's just a filter. It's a guard. Why? Because if we don't see it, if you don't see the bait right it can't trigger that part of you if it, if you can just put up some some barriers if you can just put up some boundaries healthy boundaries and i'm not saying that you know i think we've kind of overcorrected a little bit in the last 50 years in the church is like you know come out from the world and be separate so we're going to go build a a, a, a compounds and, and and we're going to all live together and and we're going to just separate from the world because the world is crazy and the world is evil and 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 and, and when and when people have done that they found that when they get there, there's a snake in that garden too. And what I'm saying by separating is not separating from the community or separating from your world, but separating from the things in your life that you know touch on that inward part of you to do evil, to make mistakes. Lust of the eyes. Job said it like this, Job 31 verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. When, why then should I look or gaze intently upon another woman? So he made his mind up. He defined his no. I used to tell someone in the high school when I was a youth pastor, boys, you need to bounce your eyes, Right. Not like this, but like this, right? Like, like just you know, when we would bounce your eyes, like I mean, you know, thank God that God's made a lot of beautiful things in the world, right? But 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 Job said, I've made a made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not gonna stare, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let it get to that next point because I know me. Is this making any sense? All right, and the last one, and then, and then we're gonna get to the good stuff, is the pride of life. And so when we're full-blown, when we take the bait, there's a progression. It, it, it It leads to pride. And what pride does in our life is it blinds us. Because I'm noticing when somebody's deceived, or if I'm deceived, I didn't know it. I didn't realize it. And I can't find anything else in the Bible. There's a lot of things that God says that we should stay away from. Greed, envy, right, covetousness, all this stuff, like it's just not good. We know it's not good. But the only thing that God says if we have in our life he's going to oppose us is pride. And I think what sin begins to do is it's like leaven and it gets everywhere and it infects. And, and then what happens is we become a little prideful and there's things in our life that we just don't see. Freud called it the ego, super ego, that everybody has. And so how do we combat that? How do we fight the good fight, right? That's fighting the good fight. That's fighting the good fight. When you know the, th- the, 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 the vices in your life and you know the things that steal in life from you and steal in joy from you and it's harming you, that's fighting the good fight. When you say, you know what, sometimes it's just drawing a line in the sand and saying, enough is enough, I've given in a million times to this, but I'm going to try this time. I'm going to say no. Sometimes it's just, you know, that repenting just means to change your mind. Like there's a cycle here. This has showed up on my New Year's resolutions list every year, and I've gotten three days and jumped right back in. I've gotten seven days, and I've jumped right back in. Or my dad struggled with this, and my grandfather struggled with this. Right? I, I, I inherited it honestly. And so, how do we how do we battle these things? And what I've seen in my life is there's no way to run from these things in our life without running to God at the same time, because we've really put a lot of emphasis on the "do not" and "thou shall not," but willpower and self-esteem and discipline is not enough. And the ones that I've seen, and in my own life, the way that God has helped me get out of the things that I know were hurting me and into the things that he had for me, is I had to focus more on what he was doing. I had to focus more on getting close to him. Because it's a heart thing. It's not a human, it's not a behavior change thing, right? It's not a, uh, you need to act better and then God will, no, 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 it's, it's, let me read it to you. Haggai 2 verse 17. God is speaking, and he's saying, you know what? You, chapter 1, we, you weren't satisfied with everything that you had. You weren't getting fulfillment out of your life. And then he goes on and says, I struck all the work of your hands. Like everything you were doing was just kind of falling apart. It wasn't working. Mildew and hell. And, and so God is kind of fessing up here, saying, I'm, I've allowed your life to get uncomfortable for this reason. You didn't return to me. And I'm seeing that sometimes it's these struggles and it's these battles that I don't believe God causes them, but he allows them because he wants us to draw closer to him. He wants us to invite him into the struggle and into the battle with us. And what the people of God did is they just drifted away from that one thing in the book of Haggai. Right, but they, you know, they were taken captive. They weren't allowed to worship anymore. And then the second thing, and I'm going to give it to you, here on on, on the second point, is they just allowed some things in their life that they shouldn't have allowed. Right? I think it's time for some folks to get an eviction notice to the devil. Come on, somebody, just just kick him out. So this 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 is enough. And I'm going to show you Ezra 10 gives us exactly how this went down. Ezra gives us the details. Of the book of Haggai two chapters in Haggai Ezra gives us the details but the first thing the first thing that we see in order to to move past this stuff in our life is God was just wanting them to renew their relationship with him I know this is simple I try I just put how do I beat the vices in my life and the things that I know are harming me it comes back to this heart to heart with God I'm renewing my relationship with him regularly. I'm not going off the prayer I prayed when I was four years old. And I caught the, you know, I stole the Bubblicious gum, gum from Tom Thumb, and Mom spanked me, and I got mad, and I got my life right, right? That was my true story, honestly. <laughs> Seriously, that did happen. That did happen to me. That's how I learned not to steal. I, my mom gave me a dime. I wasn't four. I might have been like nine. I started early, y'all. I was a pretty crafty kid. And she gave me a dime, and, and she knew I could only afford Big Red with that, and I came out with Bubblicious. Back then, you could get Big Red gum for a dime. Y'all remember that? Bubblicious was like $0.65, cent, and I like the Bubblicious, so I just took the Bubblicious, got back in the car, and she smelled it, turned the car around, maybe go in and apologize to the, to the people working there. But anyways, I think the closer we get to God, the less we want to do that stuff. The closer we get to God, the less we feel like we have to do that stuff to get what we need. And that's why Haggai was sent to the people of God. It wasn't to discourage them. It wasn't to correct them. I really believe it was God's way of saying, I want you back closer to me. I heard a story about a couple, they'd been married for 60 years and they were driving in the car and the wife was talking and she was in the passenger seat and she said, you know, when we first got married, they have been married a long time, that's a long time. She's like, when we first got married, we were just so close. People couldn't tell if it was one or two of us riding in the car. I'd be sitting all so close to you, it just looked like one person. And the husband said, well, babe, I'm still in the driver's seat. Who moved? And I think when it comes to God, he doesn't really drift, we can drift. And there's things in our life that happen to us that causes us to drift. And so we renew our our relationship with him regularly we renew it regularly the second thing is this I'm going to read it first Ezra 10 let me let me read the priest's response when Haggai prophesied the story we read this is what happened to the priests verse 1 Ezra 10 it says while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly, started in the priest, and then the people seen it. One of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful. They confessed. To our God, we've married foreign women. God said that you shouldn't do that from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. They prayed, they confessed. They prayed, they confessed. I think that's the number two thing. I got some vices in my life that I'm trying to beat and I just can't seem to get past it. We gotta repent to God and repent to others. And that's just simply asking for help. That's what they did. The priest, we don't know if the priest did anything wrong, but the priest took their wrongdoing as his own. And he, he repented. And sometimes that word repent can always be like a cursed word, right? Like we take that word like it's a bad word, but that's such a good word, y'all. And it's not something that we do one time. I think it's something that as we journey with God, we're changing our mind. We're changing course, we're making changes. We're, we're, we're confessing to him where we fall short. But the second part of that is we're letting others know. And so what had happened is they, 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 they made a mistake, but then they made the mistake again, and they made the mistake again, and it became their identity. They got so off track. They got so far from God. This had kind of been building up. You know what I'm talking about, right? those ugly tears just come out, right? It's been, it's been welling up in me. Like I, I, I've felt it there. It's been welling up in me. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things that we can do. I've heard it said that confession is good for the soul. I I also think it's good for sleeping. (laughs) I also think it's good for relationships. I also think it's good for building those healthy relationships. That we're, we're confessing. It's not something that we do, you know, just, just, just you know, once, once every three or four years. But we're doing it regularly. Because we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And that's what they did. They confessed. And when that began to happen, God began to step in. God began to move. God began to clear out the things that were in the way. I mean, the greatest way I've, I've heard it illustrated is that, like, sin, vices, our stuff that we don't like, it grows in the dark. And we're only as sick as our secrets. And when we bring it to the light, that is the power. That is the power of confession. It's just James, you know, it's, 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 it's forgiveness, but then there's also the the healing from the stuff in our life that, that has harmed us. And we do that by telling somebody. And I'm going to just let you in on a secret. That is the point of Upper Room Groups. That's the real, that is my prayer for every group that we're in. And there's a lot of groups that you can be a part of. You can, there's groups, lots of churches with great groups. I like the ones that we have. I think they're awesome. But the point of groups is not just to learn more about the Bible, and that's great. I love that part of it. But it's having a place where you can sit down in a circle and be honest with somebody. Because that's how we really grow spiritually. I mean, we can get a lot of head knowledge here, but when it moves into our heart is when we take the mask down and we say, you know what, I've been struggling with this. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one that struggled with that. I'm telling you, it just destroys the work of the enemy when you bring things to the light. And you don't have to tell the pope. You don't have to tell a pastor or a priest. Just just telling anybody. You know, I'm not saying, like, not faith. I wouldn't put on Facebook, you know what I mean? Like, Like, I wouldn't, like, broadcast it to the world. But somebody that you can trust, somebody that you know loves you that has your best interest, that's, what, that's the core, that's the glue with upper room groups. That's what makes them so great, that there's a place where I can take the mask off and just be real and say, I've been struggling in this area. I need some prayer. I need some prayer. And I'm going I'm to read the last few verses of the book, and then we're going to pray. So how does the story end? How does the story end for the people of God? I'm going to read the last just, just four or five verses in the book of Haggai, and then we're going to pray. From this day on, listen to this here. They repented, they confessed, they turned, they changed their ways, they got back on track. God said, From this day forward, I'm going to bless you. And then the word of the Lord came to Haggai one last time. And he says, I want you to tell the people, tell the governor, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, I'm going to overturn royal thrones, I'm going to shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I'm going to overthrow chariots, I'm going to drive, I'm going to, and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. It says, they're going to fight themselves. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I'm going to make you my servant. I'm going to make you one you're going to become mine. You're going to be my like my signet ring, says God. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, what does that mean? We're going to pray. But because they repented and they turned back to God, and and because they renewed their relationship with him, they seen it for the first time, we made a mistake. And in Ezra 10, if you read the rest of that chapter, this was not an easy decision. They had to leave their families, basically, and start over. I want you to catch this because I think it's so beautiful that God is flexing to them. (laughs) Again, they were overthrown by another government. They were overthrown by another empire. The Babylonians in that time were very powerful. And God is in a lot of ways saying the things that used to have you and used to control you and used to tell you what you were going to do and when you were going to do it are not going to have you anymore. Because I'm going to take you as mine and I'm going to give you the power to overcome these enemies in your life. Now, we, you, you may have never been invaded by a foreign country, right? But that's, that was their fear. They were living in fear. They thought the Babylonians were going to come back and get them again. You know, the world was at war at that point. And God in his power and his might said, I'm going to overthrow full empires to make sure you stay free. And then not only that, I'm going to wear it like I'm going to brag about it. I'm going to wear it like a ring. Because the greater the battle, the greater the victory. And the third, and I think, last thing that we see in this book is that when we do repent and we turn from this stuff that we know is hurting us and we run towards God, God says, now I want you to receive the help that you need from others and from myself. And that's exactly what we all need. And I think it's not something that we ever graduate from. That we face things in our life that we don't have the ability to overcome. We don't have the ability to face. And God says, receive what you need from me receive what you need from me when i came when i i mean i i don't like telling this story it's not great memories but when i came to god as a senior in high school i just want to say this the people that got me in the trouble that i was in were not the people that led me out of that trouble and sometimes i just just i don't know if this may be for one person god just will give you the gift of goodbye and they had to leave some relationships and they had to leave where they were. They had to leave the city that they were in to start over. And, and, and oftentimes for me, I didn't receive the help I needed and the relationships that I needed until I got the boldness to walk away from the ones that I knew were hurting me. And sometimes when people leave and sometimes when you lose a job or it can sting, but it's a gift. Because God is just repositioning you because he's wanting to bring new stuff into your life and new relationships and what he has for you. But sometimes it's just getting up the ability and getting the strength to turn and say no. And I remember when I, when I, I you know, first became a Christian, I was a senior in high school. It was some of the loneliest times in my life because I had all these friends. And what they were doing on Friday and Saturday night, I really couldn't go and do anymore. I mean, I didn't need to. And I remember some lonely times and being alone and God tenfold brought new relationships and new passions and new desires. And God will do that for you, but sometimes we just have to turn loose of something. We just got to be able to say, you know what, today enough is enough. I don't want this in my life anymore. I know it's hurting me. The people that love me know it's hurting me. And I'm gonna, by saying no, and by, by walking away, saying, all I'm, right, I'm gonna receive the help that I need. But sometimes we gotta make room for it. So I just want us to do, bow your head. I wanna pray with you this morning. I know it's a serious, a little bit of a serious message, but. But I'm sure there's one or two people here that's serious about walking away from some things in your life. They keep showing back up. It's a vice. You don't want it in your life. And I believe this morning that even right now, God is, God is moving. I just want us to do this just, just in your own mind. Just, just say, Lord, I... I I just want to be closer to you. Let's just start right there, everybody. I just, God, I, just, I, want to be, I want to be closer to you. This isn't about just getting away from things in my life or getting away from the stuff that's hurting me. It's more about getting close to you, God. Because I don't want anything in my life to separate me from you. I don't want anything in my life to separate me from the good things that you have. But when it comes to confession, it, it, we're, every head bowed, every eye is eyes closed. It's, I think when it comes to confession, we gotta name it and claim it. Just like we do with faith. You want something from God, you name it and claim it. Lord, I'm believing you for this. But if there's something in your life that you need to get past, or you need forgiveness, or you need the strength to overcome it because you're just struggling in the same area, I wanna encourage you right now to name it and claim it. Lord, I struggle with X. And I need your help. God, I struggle with this. It's hard for me to put it down. It's hard for me to get away from it. And Lord, I just, I just want to receive your victory today. And if you're in here and you've got some things in your life that you just need God's help with to overcome, I just want you to just look up at me because I want to pray for you because I'm in the same boat with you. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. Thank you. That's the first step to healing. Just being honest, man. I got some stuff in my life. I inherited it honestly and I'm just fighting it and I want victory over it. Thank you. Just, just thank you so much. So one more time, I just, i want to pray. God, we just, every person that looked up, Lord, we know that there's victory in you. We know that there's strength in you. We know that there's power in you. That God, you want every person walking in victory. I believe that with all my heart. And that victory may come through counseling, And that victory may come through calling somebody today and telling them what we're facing so we're not alone in it. That victory may come suddenly in a moment with just a prayer, but it may come through work and it may come through having to make conscious steps away from that vice and away from these things. But whatever it may be, Holy Spirit, we're open to you. If you looked up at me, just say, Holy Spirit, I'm open to you, Lord. Lead me, guide me. David said this in Psalm 51. Just pray this prayer. Search my heart, God. It's open before you. Give me the wisdom, Lord. Give me the strength to make that step. Give me the strength to say no. God, give me the boldness to tell somebody if I haven't done that. If I've done that, give me the boldness to tell somebody else who may have the wisdom and the ability to help me. Because sin grows in the dark and it's killed in the light. Jesus says, "I've I've come to turn on the light And this light no man can extinguish and all the works of darkness are exposed when we just bring things to the light. And so Lord, today we just, we bring it to you, Lord. We lay it at your feet. Every person, God, that looked up, every person that didn't and wanted to, I just pray victory over their life. God, I just pray that that even in this moment now, Lord, that you would just help them fight this battle. Get in the fight with them, Lord. Send the right people to encourage them, to give them what they need to hear, when they need to hear it, so they can say no and walk in that victory that you have. Lord, we just thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say amen.